Hello, my name's Alex, and welcome to Alex Listens, a podcast about philosophy and politics and race and psychology and that kind of stuff. A little while ago, I sat down with Dr. Charlie Bresler, who is the executive director of The Life You Can Save. Um, And if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, you may have noticed that I interviewed Peter Singer a little while ago. Um, Peter Singer is one of the world's most influential philosophers living. And he founded a charity, a non-for-profit organization called The Life You Can Save uh, over a decade ago. And I guess if you're familiar with Peter Singer's philosophy, you'll know that he's very concerned with reducing poverty and suffering in the world. Um, And that's the role of this charity, to most effectively reduce suffering in the world by, I guess, tackling poverty. And I sat down with Charlie, um, who is the executive director I mentioned before, and he isn't a philosopher. Uh, He is, I guess, a businessman, and he has a background working uh, in the corporate world. He managed a a big fashion company um, and then moved into the kind of non-for-profit scene. So I was very interested in hearing you know, his reasons for making that shift later in life. Um, why did he decide to move away from the corporate ro- world and into non-for-profit? I asked him about the direction of the charity, how he hopes to change it with his, I guess, business knowledge, um, what direction he wants to take it in, uh, why people don't give to charity as much as they ought to, as much as they should, and whether the act of giving or acts of charity in his eyes, you know, being a psychologist, have an impact on our well-being and whether there's something that we ought to prioritize in our own individual pursuit of, you know, living a better life. So yeah, that's what the interview was about. Before I move on to the interview, uh, a few quick things to note. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it in a number of ways. You can do so via Patreon, which is great. It helps me afford everything that I need to pay for in order to run the podcast. Um, or through PayPal. There are both links on my website, which is www.alexalex.co.co. You'll find links there. Otherwise, follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram at alexlistens, on Facebook under the same handle. um, And that's pretty much all you need to know. Oh, yeah. And I guess if you're really bored, you can leave me a review on iTunes and that'd be helpful. Anyway, enjoy the interview. Bye. Yeah. Live forever, that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling. For the listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, Charlie, um, who are you? How would you kind of, yeah, what's your, how do you, how do you tell people who don't know about you who you are? Well, it depends who they are, of course, and what they th- I think they might be interested in. But for the purposes of the audience, um, I'm the executive director of Peter Singer's nonprofit called The Life You Can Save. I helped Peter develop this starting in 2013. Uh, my wife and I were the initial primary funders of The Life You Can Save. Uh, and uh, I've worked as the volunteer executive director on a full-time basis since that time. Um, I'm also uh, married for 47 years to the wow. same woman, which in America may be a, a, a milestone for, for many people. Um, and I have two children, a son who's an organic farmer and a daughter who's uh, 
interested in public policy, who's an administrator for a county uh, hmm. just on the near the Canadian border, an agricultural county. So um, we have a lot of roots now in agriculture, even though none of us, uh, I, my wife nor I, were farmers. Yeah. farming families. <laughs> right. Have you has Peter Singer's uh, love for vegetables rubbed off on your family? We love vegetables, but I have to confess we're not vegans. In <laughs> fact, uh, we're not even vegetarians. And this is something I've talked to Peter about. You know, I think one way to think about it is we all have things we do that we really couldn't justify ethically. Maybe we'll talk more about that mm. as time goes on. I certainly can't justify um, not being a vegan and certainly not being a vegetarian, but there it is. Um, mm. There are many other things about myself I would not hold up as being virtues, but uh, the way I eat is probably uh, uh, not exemplary. But Peter has been a vegan, I think, since he was at Oxford, since he was a university student. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, a really long time. But anyway, um, yeah, okay, so you had a life before you went, you had a kind of uh, working life before you moved onto being, onto working um, at the, or volunteering at the life you can save. And that was in menswear. Um, and that's quite different, I guess, from, from charity work, I suppose. Um, but I guess one thing that I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview was that philosophers are probably really bad at running businesses or organizations because like they spend a lot of time reading books in ivory towers and a lot of the time philosophy is removed from the real world but i guess peter singer is renowned for kind of making philosophy uh, applicable to the real world and so yeah i guess i wondered how did you move from the world of business to, or the world, uh, yeah, I guess, how did you move from menswear to the life you can save charity? How did, how did all of that happen? Well, um, I think the story can be followed rather quickly and simply if one looks at the afterward of the updated version of the life you can save the 10th anniversary edition. I wrote an afterward about a little bit about that journey. And so um, if you listen to the podcast and go to the last chapter and listen to the afterward, that's one place you can do it. Or you can download the book at thelifeyoucansave.org slash book. And if you download the book and read the afterward, hopefully read the whole book. Um, and the book is free. Little, the book is free. And as is the uh, podcast. So um, I urge people to read the book or listen to the book and hear the afterward, but I'll give you the, the version that I can say right now. <clears throat> I think it's probably not useful to just look at my transformation from the business world to working with Peter and running the life you can save. I think one has to go back to my university days where I was an activist against the war in Vietnam and really interested in wealth inequality and had a real, I guess, grounding in, you might call non-philosophical ethics. Um, and I grew up in a family that really emphasized uh, the Holocaust and making sure that you didn't stand by and do nothing when bad things were going on. So when the Vietnam War came along, I got really interested in trying to help end that war in which 2 million um, 
Asians were killed um, by American bombs and troops. Um, and I continued with a lifelong interest in wealth inequality, but really didn't do very much about it. So I went to graduate school and, and became a psychologist and taught graduate school for seven years and ran an anxiety and stress disorders clinic. And my wife and I raised our kids and we had this wonderful family, but I still hadn't really done anything since about 1975 when the war in Vietnam ended. And I hadn't done anything as far as being an activist or worrying about what was going on kind of outside my own little sphere. And I felt really bad about that, badly about that all along, but didn't, as I said, do much. And then as I was finishing uh, my seventh year as a professor of psychology, um, I got recruited by an old high school friend to join his company that he had started that had just become a public company. And he wanted me to start a training program. I think he liked my values. Um, he thought that I could do well relating to employees and helping them do their jobs better, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know, one thing led to another and over, I ended up staying in this company for 18 years and um, eventually became president of the company. And for somebody who identified as a democratic socialist my entire life, it was kind of weird to be in a business environment, but nobody insisted that I hide my political beliefs. Um, but I also functioned as a capitalist um, in the sense that I tried to run the business humanely, but I was still ultimately had to be responsible to the shareholders. And so in 2008, as I was president, I didn't have an epiphany. I just had a realization that at 59 years old, I better do something consistent with my values that I'd had since my early 20s or even late teens and try to help somebody else besides the shareholders and the employees of the managed warehouse, the company I work for, or my own family, my little circle of friends and colleagues. So I told the board of directors and that I was going to step down and not be president anymore, and that I didn't want to be the chief executive officer afterwards. And I looked around for things to do. And I did a couple of really interesting things that I won't get into right now. But eventually, I read the book, The Life You Can Save. I also read Practical Ethics, both by Peter Singer. This is back in 2012. It's actually on vacation in Hawaii, of all places. And I wrote Peter an email. I'd never met him. Um, frankly, I'd never heard of him before I read the books. I had no background in philosophy. I took one philosophy course in university. I think we read Plato, Hume, um, maybe uh, Mill. So there was some utilitarianism. Um, and one other philosopher, I can't even remember. And I had some passing interest in Rawls because I when I was at Harvard, I lived with somebody who was at the law school, and I think Rawls mm. was hanging around back then, mm. quite a long time ago. So um, I, I wrote Peter this email and said that I read his book and that I really wanted to try to help build an organization and grow the life you can save. And one thing led to another, and my wife and I decided to fund the beginning of it, and Peter and I met. Uh, actually at the time of his TED talk, that was when I think I first actually met Peter. Hmm. And I've been working to be the executive director uh, as a volunteer ever since. And it's been 
incredible opportunity for me to uh, work with Peter and to try to impress upon people our opportunity to save lives and reduce suffering among people living in extreme poverty at relatively little cost to ourselves. Hmm. So I feel very privileged. And I don't know, that's the story. Maybe it was hmm. a little longer than you bargained for. No, 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 not at all. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I guess it, uh, I often, I think one thing that is very common for people around me, including myself to feel is this really strange tension between kind of political curiosity and political interest and activism and then like job security and actually affording a life and actually being able to care for, you know, as you said, the circle, um, the circle of people around us, our family, ourselves. And yeah, that's a very strange kind of tension to navigate. Um, yeah. And I guess, uh, one thing that we we kind of joked about earlier was, uh, you know, you being in such close proximity to Peter, but not being a vegan. And I guess I actually wore like, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I have like a down jacket that's full of feathers. And I, I wore, yeah, it is. I wore that to an interview with Peter. And that is like, the least vegan piece of clothing ever because, <laughs> um, yeah. And what, I guess one thing that is still so puzzling for me is the inability to balance kind of beliefs with, or the inability to kind of manifest beliefs in the real world with behavior. Um, so like, yeah, I'm sure many people, don't want, uh, many people don't like the sound of poverty and many people don't want the world living in poverty, but then they have savings and then those savings are just kind of resting there. Um, and they're not being directed towards the alleviation of suffering. So yeah, I guess I, I wondered whether you had had any kind of insights into, because yeah, I think I was reading that early on, one of your motivations at The Life You Can Save was to kind of expand its marketing. And I think you did some search engine optimization stuff for the website and massively increased its traffic. Um, but I wondered, like, yeah, I guess veganism and vegetarianism are incredibly mainstream things in Melbourne, in inner city Melbourne. But I guess you like even here, like I'm not a vegan anymore. I was a while ago. So yeah, I guess, have you had any insight into the way that people relate to the kind of duty they feel towards others, but then the duty they feel towards themselves? Have you kind of, have you discovered anything about that type of psychology um, over the past few years? Well, I'd like to say yes, but I think the more honest answer is I feel like I there's a lot I don't know, a lot more that I don't know than I do know. Um, I think that people want to do good, um, but they don't necessarily keep that desire in the forefront of their consciousness. They suppress the contradictions between their own behavior and their values frequently. And I think that I myself have done that. Um, 
as I was running a, a large business and was very privileged as a result of running it. And even though I tried to be compassionate towards with the employees and towards the employees, I mean, it's still, I benefited more from what was going on than most of our people in our stores. Um, but I didn't want to think about that every day and every minute. And I put my children and my wife ahead of other people um, and myself, I guess, a lot. But again, I didn't dwell on the contradiction between my universalist values, that all lives are of equal value and ought to be helped equally. And if, for example, a life could be helped in the developing world where people living in extreme poverty much more efficiently, cost-effectively, um, as opposed to you know, helping my own family or people in my immediate circle of compassion, I don't I didn't dwell on that, even though in some sense I knew it. Maybe you could say it was a type of tacit knowledge like Polanyi talks about, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't real in my mind. But I think when you make it salient, like Peter's Girl in the Pond uh, thought experiment does, where you see somebody drowning and you ask yourself, would you be willing to ruin an expensive suit of clothes in order to save that person? Everyone knows that they would be willing to mm. do that because of the saliency of that experience of seeing somebody drowning and knowing that you must do something about it. But someone living in poverty or someone living less well yourself isn't so salient. So we keep our savings and talk about uh, things we need to do for ourselves or our family in the future or education for our kids. So I haven't learned that much about how to make the saliency uh, more apparent to people, the saliency of extreme poverty, the saliency of watching your child die of a treatable disease because you don't have the money. But I do think it's, it's a, it has to do with how much the experience that those people are living in is in front of somebody. And when they are confronted with it, most people want to do something for those people. And I think one of the things that those of us who do the kind of work that I do or that Peter does is we have to get much better at bringing that emotional experience to more people at a time they're just living their everyday lives. And I think to a large extent, we fail at that. Um, if you go to our website, we have videos, um, we have con other types of content for people who do come, but it's not the same as actually watching it or being in front of a child drowning in a pond. Um, mm. And if you go to Peter's TED talk, you even see at the beginning of the TED talk that sometimes when someone is really badly hurt, even a child, people possibly walk around that person. Um, so even when it is somewhat salient, people can be very self-interested and I'm baffled as a psychologist, as a human being, but I know that people have tremendous capacity for good and mm. tremendous capacity for um, just ignoring the suffering around them. And so Alex, to be really candid, I, I don't know that I have any particular insights. I think mm. one of the insights those of us who work in this field have is that people have more compassion for a single individual than they do for millions of suffering people that are completely abstract. Um, mm. Do you have any ideas about this? Yeah, um, I guess I feel very similar to you. Uh, I think that as a philosophy student, 
um, I've spent a lot of time thinking and with a with an interest in practical ethics i've spent a lot of time thinking about suffering uh in this abstract way um without actually being like presented with it right in front of me um and i guess there is like you know as you said there is this kind of gulf or there is this gap between me in melbourne in my room on my computer safe um with water around and food and then on the other side of the screen, there is this video of this person suffering. And I guess, yeah, even if you go looking for kind of um, experiences of poverty and what it might look like, it's still kind of hard to really engage with it because there is this huge gap um, in privilege and in experience. But yeah, to answer your question, um, I, I actually, I wonder how much VR can do and how much kind of yeah i've um i've wondered how much kind of, like you know augmented reality things that really do feel real whether they will have a more profound effect on people um i guess they're not as convenient as having a video on a website like you have on the life you can save website where you can kind of see um what it's like but yeah i think i think what would be helpful for me uh, or what has been helpful for me in the past has been, um, I guess, yeah, what, what, what's been helpful for me have been things that aren't the same as everything else that I see. So anything that looks like journalism, poverty that's depicted in the news or that I read in a textbook or something, they're all kind of branched into this type of poverty that I'm very familiar with, which is something that I have to imagine or a picture that I see. But yeah, I guess, I don't know. I wonder, I, I, I think that VR is going to be massively beneficial to, um, it is going to hugely impact the way people feel about their responsibility because I think it does feel a whole lot more real. I've only done VR once and it was, yeah, an extremely immersive experience. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the only thing that came to mind um, that you that you haven't mentioned. But yeah, it does... That's a real challenge for me as well as someone who uh, has tried to pledge 10% of my money to charities at times. Um, yeah, I still, you know, when I kind of decide that I'm not going to do that or that, you know, I, I want to direct my money elsewhere, um, I think it's often because I'm not really feeling uh, as connected to, you know, the organizations that I'm giving to or the the uh, suffering that I'm alleviating. Um, and I think this is actually a real problem with utilitarian philosophy itself in that, yeah, it's based on this kind of strange language of suffering and alleviating it and reducing, uh, bad experiences and promoting good ones. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, you're right. It is an extremely challenging thing. And we would probably have, yeah, very little suffering if we were able to break that barrier between the individual and the experience of someone else. And if they were able to kind of be brought closer. Um, but yeah, maybe VR. I'm not sure. What, do, what did you think about VR? Did you have any? I didn't give it too much thought. I've thought about it on and off for years, but never for very long. And never um, Because... 
I have thought that we need to bring this experience closer to people and the VR might be a way to do it. Um, on the other hand, I do think that some of the videos that we have, think of one in particular of a girl having, a little girl having her bandages taken off of her eyes. Um, I believe it's a Fred Hollows video um, and her name is Emily. And um, this bandages are being taken off her eyes. And for the first time you can tell she's seeing her mother and the doctor holds up some fingers. I get chills even thinking about it. Mm. Um, but here's the problem. When I see it, I get a very emotional. And when I've shown it to audiences or even gone through a visualization with audiences where I bring them through almost like a hypnosis through that experience of being in the room with Emily and her mom and the doctor and getting her sight for the first time after a cataract surgery, which only costs $50. Hmm. I mean, I think that's the point. Fred Hollows can do these surgeries for $50 and give somebody a child's sight who's had congenital cataracts. And I think about that. And then I think, but wait a second, I've given away, oh, I don't know, approximately 25% of our net worth. But, and here's the big but, I know about Emily. I know about other children that are dying of treatable diseases or disabled. I know about people who could use the money, but I still live in quite a nice house. And as we're thinking about the vaccination coming, I'm thinking about a vacation that my wife and I can go on uh, to Europe or maybe to Australia or New Zealand. Um, and that's money, if you just divide the amount of money that's going to cost by 50, then uh, the cost of a cataract surgery, I'm still going to do that. I'm not going to give away all that money. Hmm. And so there's a degree of selfishness that persists even when you do have that reality and how you balance that selfishness with altruism or, or, or real, I don't know. Um, my wife and I talk about it all the time because even though most people view us as extraordinarily generous because we funded the life you can save and given away quite a lot of money, um, we could have given away a lot more and we don't. Mm -hmm. And we may, but we may not. I mean, we will give away more, but, but my point is we won't give away everything we could and we probably won't give away enough that we're actually in any way making huge sacrifices. So I think ethically, we're still on not very firm ground, even though I'm, I think, quite aware of the good that could be done with the money. Mm. So I think making people aware of the good that can be done with the money is critical. Mm. We have to do a better job of that. But on the other hand, we need to be aware that there's going to be a number of psychological mechanisms, defensive avoidance, rationalization, cognitive dissonance, you name it, there are going to be a lot of psychological mechanisms that keep people from doing the right thing, even according to their own beliefs. And this has been in Christian and Jewish and Muslim and Buddhist thinking for, for eons, right? All these religions talk about um, helping other people and, um, and, and stripping oneself of your worldly possessions and, and doing good. So um, I don't know, I can only hope that the listeners to this podcast um, will do better than they otherwise would in helping people living in extreme poverty and working with organizations and donating to organizations like The Life You Can Save and our recommended nonprofits as a result of 
this being brought to their attention through mm. Peter's work and through organizations like the life you can save. But I, the way I think of it is personal best, almost like an athlete. So if you do this, this year, give away so much money, do so much research into the best ways to, to give away the money. And then next year you do more. And the next year you do more. Um, I think that using this strategy of personal best is probably the best way to have continuous improvement um, in your giving habits and in your alleviation of suffering, rather than holding yourself to a standard that you won't live up to. And then you'll just avoid even thinking about it. But I think taking a pledge where you say, I want to do this, and then I want to do more, and then I want to do more, that, that's a start. So you've taken that pledge, Alex, of trying to give away 10%. Um, and I think that's, that's just a great start. And mm. um, my wife and I try to do that as well. But as Peter points out, he gives away, I think, about a third of his income every year. Mm. Um, I think that's what he generally says and does, um, including money to the life you can save itself. But he doesn't give away 70% of, and even this is Peter Singer, hmm. but I think he's constantly looking for ways to do better. So he tries to end animal suffering by being a vegan. He talk, he's writing a new book on veganism. He tries to do a lot for extreme poverty by working with the life you can save and speaking and donating his fees and all. But even Peter Singer is not doing it to the point where he's in extreme pain mm. or suffering, he and Renata, his wife, who you mentioned earlier. Um, so I think that Peter's exemplary, but I think we need to try to uh, do a little better each year ourselves. Mm. And yeah. uh, for students who are listening or younger people, you have a whole lifetime to just continue to improve, but don't put it off forever. I mean, start now and do more and more each year. Mm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, again, like you, you're touching on these huge and important ethical and psychological questions. And I think one thing that I have also spent a lot of time thinking about is where to draw the line in terms of, yeah, is it 30%? Is it after that point that or 30% of my income? Is it after that point that I should say, okay, I've done enough? Like where? Yeah. And even with this podcast, when I record episodes, kind of thinking about how much, what the impact is going to be. It's just, yeah, it's how I can phrase things differently to kind of convince people otherwise. Um, it's just, yeah, this eternal and ongoing process um, trying to trying to draw a firm line. Um, but I guess, yeah, with maybe with things like the podcast, it's it's less tangible. The impact is less tangible. But I guess with yeah, charity, and especially the life you can save, the whole point is that it is really tangible, and that you can see, um, you can see the impact, you know, $50, and you can restore someone's vision. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, one thing that I don't think any pro charity philosopher would want would be that someone reduces themselves to kind of abject poverty in the process of alleviating the suffering of others. Um, yeah. And I don't know, have you ever felt like, have you ever felt guilty going on a holiday or something because you've thought about, you know, let's say a flight to, I don't know, 
like because I've I've certainly felt this. I I spent a year studying in London, and you know the flights were extremely expensive. Um, and one of my friends was like, "Okay, you've got to think about the emissions, and you've got to think about how many or how much good you could do if you didn't go on this trip." And it it really did for a while. I felt um, really torn and really challenged by the fact that you know I, if I did otherwise, um, I could have you know this kind of I could do good in a way that I haven't. Um, have you? Do you ever think like that? Do you ever? Does it ever bother you that you know you're not giving away? Like, yeah, like I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it bothers me quite a lot. It doesn't necessarily make me give away more by the yeah. guilt. Yeah. I think, um, but yes, I think about it. My wife and I talk about it incessantly. Mm. It doesn't keep us from doing some of the things that we really want to do that we can't ethically justify. Mm. But I think our sensitivity to people living in extreme poverty and how easy it is to alleviate some of the worst suffering or even premature death as a result of that, um, it helps us do more good than we would otherwise do. Mm. Um, And we do live at a level that's probably much less than many people who have our amount of money would live because we do feel an obligation to help people. But it is clearly not, not only is it not putting us in abject poverty, but it, but we're still living by most people's standards, an extremely luxurious lifestyle, but not the kind of luxurious lifestyle uh, which some people in our situation are doing. So I think we're trying to do better and Mm. better. And we're wrestling with those questions of how much is enough. And um, I think that from an ethical point of view, what Peter would say is you're probably not doing enough until you're at a point where you're spending, by giving the next dollar away, you would be putting yourself in a position that would really be too really painful. Um, so I think Peter would say from a purely ethical point of view, he's not doing enough. He and Renata are not doing enough, but they're doing dramatically more than most people. Mm. And he's raised hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for people living in extreme poverty in the years since he started writing about this in the early seventies. And so I think he probably feels really good about what he's done but he wouldn't hold himself up, I think, as perfection. Hmm. And um, I'm sure he's always trying to look for ways to do more. So there is a balance, but I don't think I can justify my own spending on myself and my kids and, and, and with Diana um, at all. Hmm. But I can justify the way I live much better than the way I lived 10 years ago. Mm. or 15 years ago. So I feel like there is significant improvement. And yet I feel guilty, but I also feel very positive about the work we're doing and the amount of money we are giving away. And I think it's, some people say that wisdom is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. And I think many people have said that. And I think that's true. And I think I can hold the idea that we should be doing more and the idea that we're doing a lot of good in my head at the same time. And I think that allows me to think about it. 
But if you feel too guilty, you might engage in what sometimes referred to as defensive avoidance and just block the whole thing out or rationalize your own selfishness. And I, I think that's, that's potentially very dangerous mm. in terms of doing good for other people. Yeah. One thing that came to mind as you were talking was that, because yeah, I, the language that you used it, when talking about justifying certain behavior and kind of thinking it through and being like, is this the ethical thing to do? And then deciding to act on those grounds. I wonder whether that is actually a, 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 whether it is actually something that will help people choose to do something or not. Because really, when I have done, when I have given to charity, it hasn't been because I've sat down and kind of done this deep philosophizing deliberative thing where I've thought about, okay, if I give this amount of money here, it will do X good. Or if I buy, I don't know, this pair of shoes, I will feel X units of pleasure. It's never really been like that. It's kind of felt like a drive coming from a separate place. Um, and that's, that's actually not great news for me. I really wish that I was able to kind of act in a, that kind of really respond, have a, a an ir, have an emotional response to rational thoughts, but that really doesn't seem to be the case. Um, may, and maybe that's something else that's worth thinking about when trying to convince people that, you know, there are, there are certain things that they ought or ought not to do. Um, yeah. Did, did that, did that make, did that kind of resonate with you at all? Like, have you ever felt like the kind of uh, the focus of of the kind of psychological focus of ethics, which does have a lot to do with justifying certain behavior and not justifying certain behavior. Um, have you ever felt like that hasn't been very helpful for you, that it hasn't really actually helped you decide to do something or not? And that really, as you said, you know, you've had this since you're a, a young man, you've had this drive, you know, in, in your anti-war protesting, You've had this kind of concern that some things are bad and that other things are good and that that doesn't come from a place of rationality and sitting down and thinking, ah, what kind of world do I want to live in? Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that? I, well, I don't think my thoughts are particularly unique. I think it is a combination of your head and your heart that tend to drive pro-social type behavior. Um, I, I don't know the pro I can't define the process of how much of it is thinking about, okay, I can save uh, 10 children from blindness for $500. Hmm. So I want to give $500 today. Um, but I think some of that does operate. But I also think there's this pure emotion. When you see Emily getting her bandages off that drives you to want to give. There is a danger though in just acting out of a sense of compassion or passion because often that could lead you to give money away but not necessarily in the best possible way. Mm. So I might give money to a charity because I see a charity advertised on television with a little child but it takes a million dollars to save that child's life save from a certain type of leukemia. Or I might be seeing uh, someone in the street who pulls at my heartstrings and uh, give them money, but it may not be doing 
good. It might even be counterproductive. I must confess, I do give money to people on the street, even though it can't necessarily be justified and it may even be counterproductive. So I do think that, yes, you're, you want yourself to be driven by emotion, but I think it has to be balanced by uh, a sense of, okay, will this do as much good as I can do with that money? Mm. Um, or is there more I can do? So for me, I, I think I try to use my head and, and my heart both. Um, but one time I'm driven by my heart and other times maybe I'm more driven by intellect. But the balance of the two, I think, is necessary because if you're just driven by your heart, you may be very compassionate. You may be very giving, but you might be able to do a lot more good if you did a little bit of analysis. So if you go, for example, to the website, thelifeyoucansave.org, and you look at our impact calculator, which is on our homepage where it says how much what kind of impact can you get? It allows, when you have that emotional drive to do good, it allows you to figure out how to do good and how much good you can do. So I think you have to do both myself, yeah. if mm. you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think one other one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, there's, there have been, I'm not, I'm not aware of the authors of these studies, but there have been a number of studies that have shown that uh, people tend to feel happier and better when they give to charity. Um, and so there is this kind of positive experience for the giver. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to know whether you feel like you are more satisfied or content in your life after having moved away from the corporate world towards non-for-profit um, charity. Uh, have, have you had that experience? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there is a fair amount of evidence that people feel better when they're connected to other people and when they do good things for other people. And I think we've all had those experiences of feeling that that rush or joy of uh, pleasure by doing good for other people. Um, but yes, for me, I really can't imagine what growing old would feel like if I hadn't had the opportunity to work with Peter and the life you can save. If I look back on my life as being a pretty nice guy and a good leader and a good dad and a good husband, but I had never done more than that, I think I would be, as I approach being older, um, I'm 71 now, I think I would feel very much like there was a big, something really big missing in my life that I hadn't lived more according to my values. So I think the work I've done uh, with pleasure over the last seven, eight years has been life-changing for me. There've been a few things in my life that I would say were life-altering. One is my relationship with my wife, another of my two children, now my grandchildren. But but working with Peter Singer and the team at The Life You Can Save and doing this work has been life-altering for me. And I think I would be, quite frankly, depressed. As wonderful as my kids and my wife are, and, and as many things I've done that are pretty good, um, I think I would be quite depressed at 71 years old if I hadn't been doing this work. So hmm. I'm grateful. And in fact, sometimes I say, I think it's funny that I'm working for an organization that's called the life you can save when sometimes 
I feel like the life I'm saving is my own. Hmm. I don't think I'm saving my own life, but I would be dramatically less content, happy. And in fact, I look forward to doing more in the remaining part of my life for other people beyond my family in order to feel even better. I don't think there's a clear limit to it. And uh, when I think of Emily, the, the girl um, who had her sight restored, and I think of there being thousands of Emily's, and I think of the joy I would get from helping those people, um, or children who are dying needlessly of diarrhea, or people who are getting malaria who could, for $2, be covered with a bed net that would uh, cover them for up to three years. Um, I, I have to do more. And I think I have to do more in some sense selfishly because I feel so good when I do it. And I, I think that opportunity is available for everyone listening to this podcast, even if they're young, um, I think they can do it throughout their lives. And if they're older um, and they haven't been lucky enough to be engaged in really rational philanthropic activity, then they should be excited that that awaits them. And that's what the life you can save uh, our website is all about is trying to give people a sense of what those opportunities are. Yeah, right. And yeah, I guess just to kind of reaffirm your experience, I, I've also felt um, like in doing this podcast, which is, you know, I, it's free. Um, I, I don't, I don't get paid for it. Um, I have found, I have felt like giving in this way has been extremely enriching for me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it kind of feels paradoxical because like, you know, people are receiving this and it's this thing that I'm putting out, but it, yeah, it, it gives back so much to me. And I guess this isn't equivalent to saving lives. Um, but yeah, I guess in, in whatever ways possible for, a mostly unemployed philosophy student like me, um, who can't give thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, this, this has been a really transformative experience for me. By um, exposing people to Peter Singer's work and the life you can save, you may be saving thousands of lives or, uh, or yeah. more. I mean, what if somebody listening to your podcast, even a young person turns out to be very wealthy and they end up giving money to these highly effective nonprofits because they listen to your podcast. So hmm. I think it's extraordinary to be able to do something like this. And when you're not giving away money, I think doing something like this is equally valuable or maybe more valuable. So hmm. um, I appreciate the fact that you're doing it. Oh, well, thank you, Charlie. That's, that's really nice. Um, one thing that I... I'm not sure you were you were suggesting this, but I guess one thing that I've been thinking about, which would be a challenge for young people who aren't financially secure, is that giving to charity has the risk of, I guess, being financially unsettling and kind of disturbing people's financial security. Um, and I guess you moved from, you moved into the charity sector um, after a career um and i guess for those of us who haven't had careers uh as i guess for me it feels kind of uncomfortable that i have to think that you know the majority of my giving is probably going to or like the the most amount of money i can give is probably going to happen after like significantly later in my life 
Um, but I guess I don't really want to kind of delay the actual, because yeah, you're right. You know, someone might be listening to this podcast. Some philanthropist might be listening and they might decide, ah, okay, Alex and Charlie have really convinced me that I'm going to, I'm going to need to give a lot of money. And so I guess maybe by proxy, um, you know, both of us might have a big impact, um, on saving people's lives by convincing people to give. But yeah, I guess it feels like the, I guess the focus of the life you can save is a lot of it is about money, um, and about getting people to give, um, what can people do who don't have money to give and who don't have podcasts where they can interview directors of charities? What can people do? I was thinking about one thing the other day, because I believe the book, The Life You Can Save, is very powerful. Um, one thing people can do is take the book, The Life You Can Save, and make sure that people are aware that you can download the ebook or the celebrity read audiobook for free. But an, and that's an easy thing to do through your social networks and then to try to get your social networks to spread the word and to try to spread the word not only to your immediate social network, but to networks where there may be more wealth that those people can donate effectively and, and, and do a lot of good. Another thing I was thinking about is I've had some success at literally taking the book and putting it in little lending libraries. I don't know if you have these in Melbourne. I actually have but, one but, right outside my house. But in the street, <laughs> yeah. they have these little libraries. So I have taken to going around, carrying books in my car and putting two books in these lending libraries. And the one right outside our door here in Bellingham, uh, Washington, near Canada, I put six books in over the last two months. And they're all gone. Hmm. So I keep putting two in, they're gone. Two in, they're gone. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, we should build. So here's somebody who's a carpenter listening to your podcast. Throughout Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or Perth or wherever, you could build lending libraries and then you could put them up and you could start them off by putting copies of Peter Singer's book and then whatever other books you want people to read. And you could grow a whole movement of carpenters or people who have carpentry skills. And we could build these lending libraries, which would have the function of putting books, which are wonderful, as well as Peter's books or other interesting and stimulating books. They don't have to be about philanthropy. They could be about all kinds of things. And so I think that my son's a carpenter, but he's primarily an organic farmer. So he's not going to do this. But I would think that that here's a simple thing that some person could do as some carpentry skills and organize other carpenters throughout Melbourne or throughout Australia or even throughout the world. And it's like carpentry for good. And you build these lending libraries and you put them up everywhere. So there's an example of something that came to me just the other day when I was kind of meandering on thinking about, well, how do you do good? That doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of money to put up a lending library. And so um, that's one thing I was thinking of. But if somebody sits down and just thinks for an hour of all the things you one could do given their skill sets, right? Because a lot of people are like me. They're not good carpenters who are listening to this podcast, but they may have other skills. Certainly they can 
They might be active on social media. They can see how many of these books, The Life You Can Save, uh, either the audiobook or the ebook, they could get downloaded and read through some clever thing that they do. Um, they could go out and raise money. I've been thinking about, here's another idea I had. Um, although I don't tend to like these things, my hobby is long distance walking. I walk about, oh, I don't know, around 100 kilometers each week, wow. which is not an incredible amount of walking, but it's, it's pretty much. I was thinking, what if I could walk 150 kilometers for a few months each month? So 150 kilometers a week, say for three months and raise money for the life you can save that way. I don't tend to like those kinds of things. But again, here's something I could do that would take no money on my part. We would, Diana and I wouldn't be donating any more money or we could put up a match. And, and people don't know how many miles or kilometers a 71 year old guy is gonna walk. I wouldn't necessarily even tell them. Say, how much do you wanna donate for each kilometer I walk over the next three months? And how that would be good for me because it would get me walking more assuming I don't get an overuse injury and it would be good for the life you can save because we would donate all the money to these recommended nonprofits. Anyway, I think that there's no limits to what people can do without money, I guess is what I'm saying. Hmm. Just the other day in Australia, south of Sydney, there were a mountaineering club that raised $5 million approximately by climbing in one day, the 10 highest peaks south of Sydney. I don't know what they are. I can't imagine. They walk 55 kilometers, mostly vertically in 13 <laughs> hours. And they raise like four or five million, four or $5,000 uh, for the life you can save. And so there was an example of something that all it cost was some hiking boots. And, uh, and so again, the answer, this is, I'm getting into this too much maybe, but there is a ton people can do without money in spreading the word and um, I, there's no end to how creative people can be. I really like this carpentry uh, lending library idea. If you know any carpenters or any carpenters are listening to this, start a, start a carpentry club and the life you can save will support you. I mean, if you want to build a whole bunch of lending libraries, but you don't have the money for the wood, I'm sure I can raise the money uh, for the wood. I think it'd be a great thing to do. Yeah. So there are a lot of things you can do. Yeah, I also had a thought. Do you remember a few years ago when every iPhone, every like Apple Music app had the one song by U2 on it? That was like the default song. I'll tell you what you should do, Charlie. You should contact Apple and you should make the default book in Apple Books <laughs> the life you can save. Imagine. Every person. Well, we are on, we're on, we have a podcast now on Apple mm. and uh, I think that's right. So that would be great. But I'm going to say you do it, Alex, or you find <laughs> someone to do it because yeah. I'm busy enough doing stuff for the life you can save <laughs> now. So what I, I think what, what, what we're saying is that there's a lot of work to be done mm. and we just need to spread it out. And mm. uh, you're already doing your podcast and studying philosophy. So, um, but recruiting other people, and it doesn't take any money. Mm. I mean, that's mm. the point. Mm. Okay, Charlie, I've got one last question for you. Um, and this is something that I've been thinking about for a little while, but what is, what is the future of the life you can save? What is the future of charity? How are you hoping to 
I guess, reconfigure the organization? Uh, what are your, what are the organization's goals over the next few years? What do you hope to achieve? Um, yeah. I think the number one thing is that I would like to see the life you can save distribute hundreds of thousands, even millions of copies of either the ebook, the audio book, or the paperback book of the life you can save and related content. Hmm. So short videos that relate to the, to the content like the Emily video that we've got. So I'd like to see the life you can save raise enough money for itself over the next five, 10 years that we become a major distribution for promulgating Peter's ideas because Peter's ideas and, and put in shorter form, not always Peter's book, but Peter's ideas. And there, I, I think we can raise billions of dollars some of it will come through people like you, Alex, who maybe donate $50 in a year or $200 in a year. And some of it will come through billionaires like Dustin Moskovitz and Kerry Tuna, who have $5 billion or $10 billion that they're going to donate because they encountered Peter Singer a large number of years ago, um, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, so I think we just need to keep putting out the word grow the life you can save into a really good, clever marketing group that can distribute this book through podcasts and public relations and partnerships and get those ideas. So my ambitions are very, very big, but also very simple, which mm. is to be the distribution network for these great ideas. And that's kind of what, what I hope to see. And um, as long as I'm healthy and alive, I want to help. And, uh, we have many people on our team who are have a similar vision and, and we're just going to make it happen. Great. Okay. Well, Charlie, you've been extremely generous with your time. Oh, so, no, it's my pleasure. And thank you. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks so much for talking to me. This is a really, yeah, I hope for all the listeners that you have, uh, you have a lot to think about. Um, because, yeah. Yeah. There's, we, we, we covered a lot of ground. So thanks a lot, Charlie. Thanks. And just do a little bit of good, uh, each year and then do a little more the next year and uh, I think you'll be on the right track. Thanks very much.